Mike Young, another episode of Stories That Need To Be Told, and we are sitting here in my mom's living room outside of Detroit in West Bloomfield, Michigan, in the living room watching boxing, ironically enough, and I'm sitting here with my brother, Robert, who you are all going to meet right now. What up, Rob? What up, Mike? Thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> if I let my brother continue talking, he'll just go for an hour straight and I won't get a word in. So I'm going to do the, uh, I'll, I'll lead the questions and the conversation and you'll just, as my little brother, you'll just follow along. <laughs> Is that cool? Gaga. Okay, good. And in the background, if you hear a little strumming, that's my nephew, Ian. That's how we do it here. Uh, ironically enough, we're watching boxing, and we just came off of a very rough weekend. Um, we came off of our my dad's best friend, Freddie's funeral, and I told you guys about Freddie in one of the other podcasts uh, where I talk about the TV show in Detroit and the thing with Eminem attached as an executive producer and Detroit in the 70s, Southwood Athletic Club, and my dad and his friends. So my dad had a core of friends that were all true characters. And uh, I had a show on Friday, uh, two shows with Sebastian Maniscalco at Royal Oak Music Theater. Great shows, 2,000 people, both shows sold out, woke up in the morning to horribly shitty news. And uh, heard that Freddie had passed away, and he was 74 years old, and he was a huge influence on our lives. And what would you say, Rob? Would you say that he was like a second or third dad? You know what I mean? Somebody we could look up to and look out for or who looked out for us even when dad passed. Yeah, absolutely. He was. Uh, I remember right after dad passed away and he would introduce me to people and he'd say, this is my son, Robert. I now have two extra sons, Mike and Robert. And, you know, if I could, because I know you're not going to let me get too many words in edgewise, I just want to put this out there. Mike wrote something extremely, you know, deep in uh, uh, for the services yesterday uh, about Freddie, for Freddie, for the family. And I, w I was going to read it yesterday at the services, uh, but there was just so much going on that there wasn't time, so we made copies for everybody. So I just want to read it. If I don't, if I don't get another word in this podcast, at least I want to read Mike's words that he put together to sum up uh, what Freddie meant to us. So here I go. Is that all right, Mike? Yeah, this is for Dr. Fred Lorenz. And, you know, it ain't about who you know, and it ain't about fucking all the celebrity shit that Freddie took us into when he, when he, you know, when he was the doctor for the fighters and when he was the doctor for Elvis. But for you guys out there who are listening, you can, at any given time, if you ever want to, you know, you can Google Dr. Fred Lorenz and Elvis and racquetball. And he literally taught Elvis Presley racquetball in the 70s at Graceland and he was a special dude beyond all that. So go ahead, Rob. You can read it. <clears throat> Freddie, we're going to miss you. Too many times to mention, but we can start with the times at Boyne Highlands with you, Chris, and the boys. When my mom and dad seemed happiest around you. When we learned for the first time that parents could be cool too. Cooler than the kids. All the Christmases we came to your house when people from every walk of life would hang out celebrating the holiday and never wanting to leave when me and Mike would be so happy that your kids had all the best toys and we'd use them until they wanted us out. Every time we spent with you and your family was a good time, Freddie. Every single time. You were all about having the good time in life. I think my dad went to your office more for the fun than for the flu. <laughs> you put your people at ease, Freddie. From our perspective, we felt protected. There was a Southfield Athletic Club. We knew something special was going on there. We just couldn't articulate it. Every guy there had their role, and you were Doc, and everyone looked up to you. There was my father, Sam, and there was Dennis, and Howard, and Eduardo, and Sheldon, and Michael, and Jeffrey, and Coach Carpellis, and there was you, Doc. No one could have played the role better in life ever. Jimmy, Freddie, Greggy, and Sasha, Chrissy, and Betty, you're so blessed to have had him. Because for someone that so many people wanted to be around, Freddie was still able to show you that you guys were his number one thing in life at all times, always. Freddie was a force of nature. When you were with Fred, you felt safe. You knew you were going to have fun. You knew you were going to meet some great, interesting people. You knew you were in good hands. You just knew you'd be okay. 
because Fred's mission was to make sure you had a good time because Freddie himself, well, he was always okay. Freddie was okay. Freddie was my father, Sam Young's. <clears throat> Freddie and my father, Sam Young, were great friends for many years. They played racquetball together at the Southfield Athletic Club where the cast of characters were something out of Damon Runyon piece. They just don't make guys like this anymore. Where else did a doctor, lawyer, a scrap man, the head of a crime family, and a judge all get along? My dad <clears throat> played the good guy, laying back, taking it all in, and Freddie walked in like the man with a presence, chest out, walking tall, making an entrance. They all looked up to Freddie. He commanded attention. It was natural. Freddie was a friend to all. Freddie walked in all worlds with equal proficiency. He got along well with the help as he did with the president. He could talk to the fighters. He could talk to the managers. He got along with valet parkers and got along with the owners. He was a lover of people and someone that didn't, <clears throat> did not judge you, regardless of your race, creed, color, social status, or lot in life. Freddie was okay with Freddie, something we all wish we could say about ourselves. And it was because Freddie saw himself in all those people. He saw himself in every rank in life. He felt rich, he felt poor. He knew what it was to struggle and fail, and he knew what it was to win and win big. He came from nothing and made something. Freddie taught me to take life by the horns and make it what you want. Nothing was impossible. Nothing was out of reach. He grew up poor and ended up in Graceland teaching Elvis racquetball. This is a journey. Freddie had confidence. Who else could pull off a cowboy hat, a rainbow-colored Robert Graham shirt, a sport coat and purple Kobe Bryant shoes, and walk around as if this was the newest in fashion? Not to mention that cologne that's still lingering in the Traveler's Tower building 30 years later. Freddie made his own tracks. We all strive to be ourselves and find our voice in this world and find out who we really are, but Freddie knew exactly who he was. Freddie had a beautiful heart. When my dad died and was sick and very, very little time to live, Freddie showed up at the house and to make sure they felt like they were back in the South Athletic Club where they were truly a band of brothers. Freddie brought in a big screen TV to put right in my dad's parents' bedroom, threw on his robe and sat in the bed with my dad like they were in the locker room at the club. They watched TV, laughed and cried together. He couldn't have made us feel more love at that time. He helped to ease the blow that was going to change our lives forever. That's, for that, we're forever grateful. He called my mom and my brother and I, often, and I often to make sure we were doing okay. After my dad passed, he would make sure my mom was all right, sending flowers on Valentine's and checking in all the time. And for that, we loved him. I could go on for a long time, but I have the feeling everyone has stories that are similar. You touched everyone, Fred. You gave it your all, and in the end, we all felt, felt it and can never forget it. You may have been a doctor of the stars, but your heart and soul belong to the everyman. We love you, Fred, and we will miss you. Love you. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta get it done. No time for fun now. Take me back. sounded like till you read it oh yeah it was beautiful i mean that was great i mean i feel like i didn't write it yeah i want to say that it was beautiful but i mean i know i wrote it but i didn't i didn't feel like i wrote it i feel like he wrote i feel like he wrote his own he wrote his own story you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean you can because you and i were together on a thousand of those trips and you can if you want you can you can share uh you can share when my dad passed, Freddie, you know, he was still the fight doctor. He was Tommy Hearns' doctor. He was Emmanuel or uh, Lennox Lewis's fight doctor. 
And even last night at the funeral afterwards, at the get-together, we were able to talk about all those stories. And Norman was telling me, I mean, you know, when Phil Collins and Genesis was in town, the guy needed a shot. Freddie was like, Norm, you hold this medical kit. I hold this medical kit. We roll into the back of Joe Louis Arena or Kobo Arena and don't say shit. Just follow my lead. I'm going to give the guy a shot. You know what I mean? He was the go-to guy for every one of these guys. But you could talk about how he took you to the Poconos. Oh yeah. During Lennox Lewis's camp when Tommy Hearns was training and Oh yeah. If you want to tell that story. But yeah. Freddie always made sure we were okay and he I was in college. I or I think I was actually maybe living in LA, I don't remember, but he called Rob, he called my brother and, and put him on a trip and took him to training camp. Go well ahead. what happened was I was looking to, you know, help with Kronk and get their merchandising out. You remember like it was at that time where I was home working and I wasn't sure what I exactly wanted to do. And we were working the scrap business and I always had a passion for Kronk. And obviously you and I have been around it since basically, you know, the early seventies <laughs> when the Kronk team started and, and whatnot. So I always had a passion for the merchandise for, you know, the colors, the Kronk colors, the Kronk team. And I, I couldn't understand why, you know, with all the Detroit sports teams, the Lions and Tigers and Red Wings and Pistons, why there wasn't Kronk gear at the stores? Like, why couldn't you just readily buy that stuff? And for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly what Kronk is, this is the Kronk boxing team. So, and the Kronk gym, legendary boxing gym, headed by Emmanuel Stewart, legendary boxing trainer, trainer to over 40 world champions over a 20-year period. It's, it's, un, it's unmatched in the world of boxing fresh out of Detroit and these were this is who we're talking about Kronk right so so Freddie invited me to come to the Poconos with him for Lennox Lewis's training camp and one of Tommy's last fights uh, that he was training for as well so mom booked the tickets for me and Freddie we took a little puddle jumper into the Pocono Mountains to Caesars Poconos and Freddie and I shared a cabin together up in the mountains and the training camp uh, obviously was in the mountains. Arturo Gotti was there, Lennox Lewis, Tommy Hearns, all the sparring partners, Emmanuel, of course. And did you get to hang with Gotti at all? Did yeah. You, did oh, you? yeah, yeah. We went, out, uh, we went out to dinner after one of the nights. Uh, it was me, Emmanuel, and Freddie, um, Prentice Bird, and a couple of the other uh, Kronk uh, guys. And we walk into the restaurant, and Arturo Gotti's sitting at the bar by himself. And we immediately walked up to him and hung out with him and had a drink with him, invited him to sit down with us. And me, Freddie, and Emmanuel, Lennox, and Prentice, and a few other guys uh, had dinner with Arturo Gotti. And I sat right next to him at dinner. And he was great. He was loving, smiling, just, you know, character. full of life character. Um, but, it, but it was interesting that he was alone in the Poconos at this obscure restaurant in the mountains. Was he waiting for you guys for, to get there for training camp? No, I, I mean, unless he talked to Emmanuel beforehand and said, hey, we're going to be there, or Emmanuel reached out to him ahead of time and said, hey, by the way, we're going to be in the Poconos, because there may have been other training camps up there. I don't know why he was there. I don't. It was almost 20 years ago now. I'm not sure why he was particularly there. I mean, it was Kronk boxing team. Yeah. We walked in with our Kronk gear as a Kronk team, and Arturo never fought out of the Kronk. He was just, you know, happened to be in the Poconos. And yeah, he looked, uh, for sure training. For sure, I mean, he, well, he was, you know, he was, he was having a good time that night. He was not training uh, that night, and if he was working out the next morning, I would have been surprised. We had a great time though, and he was a loving guy. And uh, anybody that knows boxing, most fighters are have a sweet uh, disposition. But anyway, getting back to an interesting story, when I was out there with Freddie, I mean, when he was like, he was the greatest. I mean, you talk about access, you talk about VIP access. Right. I mean. I, I was like the cut man, the guy in the corner sitting with Emmanuel while they're, you know, lacing up the gloves and he was taping the fists of yeah. the heavyweight champ of the world and seven, eight time world champion Tommy Hearns and all these great guys. And, you know, Tommy was at the end of his career and Lennox was the heavyweight champion of the world. And so we were there early, you know, for hours at, in the Poconos training facility. And Tommy showed up after lunch one day and me and Emmanuel and Freddie and, and the fighters, we would drive in together. Emmanuel had a minivan, and it was usually me, Freddie, Emmanuel, and Lennox. And then this day, we're driving back after training camp, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 
And Tommy showed up late this day, like after lunch, and worked out. He like hit the speed bag for like three <laughs> rounds. He hit the heavy bag for a round. He, I think I counted like 15 or 20 sit-ups and push-ups that he did. And it was just funny to me because I've known Tommy my whole life. Looking at him, he's always been in the best shape of his life. And I always you know, thought about how hard boxers train and whatnot. And here I am standing next to him. He's barely breaking a sweat. And then we're taking the van back to the tr- back to the camp to right. you know wash up for dinner so i'm sitting in the back of the van emmanuel's driving freddie's in the passenger seat i'm sitting in the back seat between lennox lewis and tommy the hitman hearns eight time world champion <laughs> six different weight classes one of the greatest fighters of all time mid of fought fought marvin hagler for the greatest three rounds in boxing history if you don't know about boxing and you're like an mma dude that's cool but guess what Go Google Tommy Hearns, Marvin Hagler, and you'll see the best three rounds you've ever seen in your life. And then you can go Google Tommy Hearns and Sugar Ray, and you'll see some of the greatest wars of all time and just get your knowledge up. That's right. I'm sitting between two guys that have like 500 amateur and professional fights between them. Two of the baddest men on (laughs) earth, and my brother is in the middle of them in the back of a van, and he's 18, 19 years old and just happy to be there. Happy to be there and feeling a little bit, you know, good. Part of the crew. I'm totally part of the crew, part of the team, got my gear on, had worked out all day, feeling pretty good about myself, and I felt compelled to ask Tommy why he wasn't training so hard. Considering, Not, considering it was one of his last fights. My brother, let just preface this. My brother is a true athlete. He played Division One football as a wide receiver, walked on Arizona's team. Phenom of an athlete, stronger than any kid in the neighborhood, badass on every level but not a world champion boxer <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. And also probably didn't really gauge the sensitivity of Tommy at the time. So go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely did not understand the sensitivity. I've seen Tommy in his best, and I've seen this was probably one of the – I touched on a subject that probably you know was very close to him, and he was very hypersensitive to it when I asked him. It's something you could work on. It's probably understand, something yeah. – Understanding other people's sensitivity <laughs> in a moment of crisis. But go ahead. You're 100% right, Mike. I probably should have gauged that one a little bit better and right. thought about it thought about it before I spoke. Right. So you're in the middle of two greatest <laughs> fighters on the planet Earth at different times. Right. In the, in the- Lennox is 220-some pounds. Tommy's fighting at light heavyweight. I'm about 190 myself. So there's 600 pounds of badass flesh in the back seat. Emmanuel and Freddie in the front seat listening to me ask Tommy why he wouldn't want to train harder for one of his last fights, especially since it's going to be at Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit in front of his hometown crowd. And next thing I know, Lennox starts leaning on me and pushing me into Tommy. He just put his heavy weights, like, shoulder into me and started leaning closer and closer into me so that I was leaning onto Tommy. So now I couldn't you, get away. What do you take that as? Like, what, 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 what was the meaning of that? Because I take it as, okay, little boy, you're going to get – you want to talk shit to the Hitman Hearns? I'm going to put you on him and see. It, it, was it, it that? It, 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 it absolutely started off as in jest. I was not trying to get under Tommy's skin whatsoever. There was no hidden agenda. I was, I was certainly not trying to be somebody that had any authority on anything regarding boxing. I simply was asking the question, but mostly in jest, almost like a little brother like how I talk to you about comedy and kind of give you some shit about it, but you know that it's coming from a loving place. I did that with Tommy with a little bit of jest and a little bit of maybe I stepped over the line a little bit with, I said, hey, I got up and did the road work with the team this morning. Where were you? You didn't show up until after lunch. I thought that would have broke the ice. And as I was saying these sentences to Tommy, I realized right away that it I probably should have just shut up and not said a word. Because yeah. what was happening with Lennox leaning on me, he was doing it because he was be- he was like the big brother in the back of the car. He was like the big guy, heavyweight champ, so he had nothing to lose. He knew I wasn't going to say anything to him. And Tommy and I had a, had a closeness and a bond, so it was easy to talk to. I didn't realize it was going to take a turn for the worse when Lennox started pushing me into Tommy, thinking it was funny, because Tommy asked Emmanuel, Hey, Emmanuel why don't you turn the van around and let's take Robert back to the gym and put some gloves on Robert. And Freddie started laughing 
And he goes, yeah, turn the van around. And Emmanuel pulled over to the side of the road and the mountainside. And we stopped. And he was going to do a U-turn to go back to the gym because we were not even like a mile out. And Tommy goes, why don't you put the gloves on and I'll show you, you know, who's training harder. And I said, Emmanuel, you can throw it in park right now. And Tommy, we can get out right here on the side of the road in the mountains and I will fight you in the street. And Tommy said, I do not fight in the street. I only fight in the ring. And he goes, no, Emmanuel. He goes, he goes, pull it back there. He goes, he goes, put the gloves on, Robert. We'll put him in the ring. And Lennox was leaning on me. I'm basically, I mean, it's just sweaty. You know, it's disgusting back there. And it just sweaty and smelly. And, and, and I could feel the tension. And Tommy goes, no, t- you know, take us back to the ring. I don't fight in the street. And Emmanuel is about to turn the car around. We literally were stopped on the side of the mountains in the Poconos. And, and I said, I, 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 you'll kill me, Tommy. I go, listen, I'm not trying. And I kind of backpedal a little bit because I was I now felt I felt the air of you know the him you know and he was pissed he was pissed at me yeah a little bit for sure and we still talk about it to this day you know when I see him you know 20 years later I don't fight in the street I only fight in the ring why would he fight in the street (laughs) why Why would he risk injuring a knuckle on a hand that makes him 40 million a fight (laughs) right why would he and I why would I go in the ring with him when I have no experience other than amateurs and, you know, I was just, I was trying to be cute. I was trying to be like a little cousin, little brother, you know, and, and, and it took a turn for the worse immediately. But did you learn from that? Did you learn? Yeah, yeah I think I learned. That there's a line. There's for sure a line. There's for sure a line. Don't mess. Who've had a history of that is his life and yeah. blood and sweat and tears for his whole life. You're right. But, but you learned. I learned. Absolutely. I will say this, though, that I did, I did after years when I would see Tommy and he was retired and we would sit and talk about it because I went to that last fight at Joe Lewis and I did see his last fight there and he did, he, he did have a hard time in the fight. He did, ha- uh, he was challenged in, in front of his hometown crowd. And I will say this that he definitely could have put more effort in at training camp. And I love Tommy, and he knows it too. And, you know, all I'm going to say is is that I was trying to keep it light because it was training camp and whatnot, but I was also looking out for my boy. I was also looking out for Tommy. I was really trying to find, like, a silver lining in that whole thing. And, yeah, I stepped over the line. I was in his domain, and I love Tommy, and he knows that. And I would never say anything to try to, you know, bring him down or make him feel in a, a certain way. I was only trying to lift him up. So boxers are such characters. They're just like we've been around them our whole lives, and they're yeah. just they're just a different breed. And it, there's something that happens when a dude's whole life is just to be in a ring, trying to save his own life. You know what I mean? There's just they become yeah. hum, they're humble, they're sweet, yeah. but there's another side to them that is just straight right. killer, right. kill or be killed, right? And that's uh yeah we've gotten a chance to see that that's good because that later in life we both went to the lennox lewis training in vegas yeah. and he threw us out of the gym <laughs> yeah. just as spectators he didn't talk to us or at least me remember well, when uh emmanuel invited us emmanuel up invited us to the gym and maybe we we're talking lewis, to roger mayweather yeah we're talking to mayweather and lennox lewis just wanted us out of the gym and then later years later i remember talking to emmanuel and he's like yeah lennox well you know he's sensitive and he just doesn't want anybody around and da da da. Right. But right. being in Detroit, you've had a chance to be around all the Kronk stuff. And you keep, you know, my brother is one of the biggest advocates of trying to figure out how to revive or keep alive the spirit of Kronk boxing. And it's one of those things that you've been fighting a sort of an uphill battle. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. And unfortunately, obviously, Emmanuel's been gone for a few years. Um, but the spirit of what Kronk is all about still, you know, lingers in, in the streets of Detroit and within the boxing community here. And what's so unique about Kronk that most people don't realize, because boxing, you look at it as an individual sport, it's, uh, you know, tete to tete and, you know, you see a lot of these characters and they're sort of wayward and they don't, they don't have their path. The one thing about Kronk that is so unique, why everybody in the world thinks that you know, that's the greatest, uh, why it is the greatest boxing gym of all time. It was a team. And as an individual sport, to have teammates rooting for you in the corner was something no other boxing gym or 
anybody in the boxing community ever had. And Kronk was a team. So you could have Tommy Hearns who was fighting at welterweight. And then you had, you know, guys like Mark Breland and you had Tony Tucker at heavyweight. Tony Tucker and Hilmer Kente and Jimmy Paul at lightweight. You had all these different, you know, weight classes. They were all, always cheering you on, like your teammates, right? They were your teammates. Yeah, they it was, were a real team. They were a real team. And that was the difference between, you know, the Goosen camp and, and the Gleason camp <laughs> and all these other, you know, camps that were all the Duva camps and the Don King's camp. Kronk boxing team was a team. And Emmanuel was the father figure, and he was the coach of that team. And there was no other – it was incomparable. There was no other uh, – that, that's why, that's, uh, that's why it, it's so special. Um, guys like Sugar Ray Leonard trained there before he went to the Olympics in 76. He had Tyson. I mean, Tyson came and trained with Emmanuel for a while. Roy Jones Jr. Evander Holyfield. There were over 50 And then he trained champions. Bo when he didn't get along with Holyfield. Right. Emmanuel had a beef with Holyfield and said, you know what, watch this. Now I'm going to go train Bo to whoop your ass. Right. In the trilogy. But in the meantime, he also trained Holyfield to whoop Bo's ass. Yeah. He was in both corners. He never lost a fight when he trained the heavyweight. He was he, he trained more heavyweight champions than anybody in history. Yeah. And yeah. anyway, so, you know, it's, it's all Detroit-centric, obviously. Dad's known Emmanuel since day one, Tommy and those guys. We went to school with, you know, Tommy's little brothers, Jesse and Billy and Ronnie and those guys, and, and they grew up in Southfield too. And, you know, for us it means something. It's, it's a little bit different than, uh, you know, going out and rooting for something that you just found out about and have a passion for. It's something that's in our genetic predisposition to want to, you know, uh, help out the fight game and, and to know that it's a lot more than the fight itself. It's, it's more – you know, what Kronk was to most of these kids growing up, they didn't go there because it was uh, – they wanted to be a world champion. They wanted to be a fighter. It was a, more of a latchkey program for these kids. Right. Emmanuel took them literally kids off the street with athletic ability who thought they might want to get into boxing, and he took some wayward kids, put them in the gym, and got gave them a life. And if they didn't become champions – they become be they became better men and better parts of society for coming through the Kronk doors. Absolutely. It, it, what people don't realize is is that Kronk was a recreation center. It wasn't just a boxing gym. They had swimming and arts and crafts and tutors there. The Kronk Rec Center was the the, the gym was the smallest part. The boxing gym was the smallest part of the Kronk Rec Center. It was in the basement. It was a, a room that was sort of given to Emmanuel because he wanted to train his brother in boxing. And what was happening was these kids that were studying upstairs or in the tutorial programs or taking swimming lessons or basketball uh, camps, it was, it was a Parks and Recreation Association. And Kronk came in later in the late 60s, early 70s, and kids started taking a liking to going down and hitting the heavy bag and working with Emmanuel. They had no aspirations to be professional fighters. But Emmanuel was a mentor to all of them. And what happened was he found something in each one of these kids that brought out the best of them. And a lot of them came from single-family homes. Most of them did. A lot of them came from, you know, within blocks of each other. I mean, Milt McCrory and Jimmy Paul grew up on the same street. Right, both ending up world champions. I mean, that's unheard of. Yeah, unheard of. I mean, not a lot of that stuff ever happened. And Tommy was right there in the mix. And the Kronk uh, sparring sessions were legendary. I mean, some of their sparring sessions... I mean, go down and go, Gerald McClellan, I mean, the sparring session, if you can look up, if, if there were tapes on, they could do 10 years of on, on HBO Sports of uh, the legendary Kronk sparring sessions. I can't even imagine what it was like watching. I didn't get a chance to see Tommy spar. I actually, I saw him spar in Tucson later in life. I saw him spar in Tucson where he mm -hmm. was kind of past his prime. But at the tail end, but I didn't get to see any real true Kronk wars. But I saw wars. Yeah, for in the, sure. In the, in the South Tucson Kronk gym. Oh yeah. When they opened up Kronk in yeah. in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, we had Kenny Gould. Kenny Gould was out of there, Olympic world uh, Olympic uh, gold medalist. Yeah, Ray Ray Medell, Jesse Benavidez, Dennis Andres. Dennis Andres fought Tommy Hearns, and I think Tommy beat Dennis. Tommy Andres. did beat him. Yeah, but I'll never forget seeing Dennis Andres hit a heavy bag. And this was a guy that was made out of straight-up black steel. And he looked like what Superman's body wished it looked like. And he would hit the heavy bag, and he would break. You never saw anything like it. I've seen video of Joe Rogan, like, kicking a heavy bag, and he breaks it in half. 
this is what he did with his hands. Dennis Andres hit the heavy bag so damn hard. I remember seeing the heavy bag just fold in half. I'd never seen a heavy bag fold in half. Right. And I thought, yeah, this is world class. There's we've seen a ton of fighters come up, amateurs that was great, did it, but there's something that separates the the good from right. world class, and it's obvious when you see it. We were very lucky. I mean, let's circle back. I mean, none of this would have happened if it wasn't for Freddie and Dad. None of it would have happened if it wasn't for Freddie introducing us to... No, Freddie and Dad at the Southwood Athletic Club, Emmanuel Stewart was a member of the club, sent boxers from Kronk to train us in boxing on the racquetball courts. That's right. I remember taking lessons in boxing, plus... What we didn't mention is that both of our uncles, we have two great uncles that were pro fighters. So boxing and fighting was always in our family. You know, yeah. we were just, we'd be putting on gloves at 10 years old, <laughs> sparring our cousins, which, you know, with no skill, but still kind of gravitating towards it. So uh-huh. it's not like a long shot that we were going to be gravitating towards fighting or boxing. But yeah, it goes all, it just goes right back to dad. And then Freddie took it to the next level and put dad with Emmanuel, you know, and all of a sudden uh-huh. we know Emmanuel Stewart. And it just goes to show you, like, as kids, we kind of had, like, this fairy tale <laughs> shit going on. And I always say that because of Freddie living the fairy tale and introduce, you know, dad, mom and dad were going to, like, backstage at he took dad to Black Sabbath. Dad didn't know who the fuck Black Sabbath was. Dad <laughs> right. was into the Beach Boys. <laughs> right. You know, remember he came home. He's like, I met the nicest guys. Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, Black Snabbath. Black Nabbath. He didn't know who the hell they were. He didn't give a shit. No. You know, but like because of that, because of us being able to see that, it cracks open another layer of what's possible in life. Because dad, Freddie, Emmanuel yeah. came from nothing. Right. And so odds stacked against them on all levels. These are guys we're low. These are self-made men, yeah. you know, and that's why I, that's, that's how I like to honor Freddie. And I think about Freddie cause you know, I'm always looking for the poetry in life or the irony in life. And Freddie was a guy that, you know, he puffed his chest out when he walked, you know, Jimmy even said it, his son said it yesterday. People thought he was like six, two, he was five eleven, but he seemed six, two cause he held himself high and strong and this was a guy who came from nothing and you're either going to when you come from nothing you're either going to believe you're going to be nothing or you're going to have like this fire of energy in your stomach in your gut that is going to propel you to believe that you could be anything yeah and he fucking put him you know he became olympic olympic level swimmer you know doctor who you know flew past his boards and became doctor to the stars, you know, and like came from dirt poor Detroit. And it's like you can yeah. go one of the one or two ways in life. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that just lets you know you can truly I don't like to say that you could be anything you want to be, because if you're five four and you're trying to be in the NBA, you might be wasting your time. <laughs> right. Yes, there's one Muggsy Bogues, but like right. you can be anything that you believe you can be. Right. Let's say that. Right. If you're real with yourself and you're self-aware, right. you can truly be anything right. you believe you can be. And we know that because of the men that we were lucky enough to be around. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I It's also ironic that Freddie had his gym, I mean his his clinic, in Detroit on Six Mile. Right. So he was actually giving back to the community, and like they said yesterday in the services, well Tarek mentioned it yesterday at the podium. He said, you know, how much Freddie did for him that most people would never know, but Freddie never charged him. Yeah. And and I I got to believe that that was true, and I and I actually know that that is true for the entire Kronk organization. That it was very rare that there was ever anything asked from them as far as monetary for the services that Freddie rendered. He did it out of the kindness of his heart, knowing that these were kids coming from nothing as well. And if Freddie had something, it was yours too. He shared that with you. And he was selfless in that regard. And I can't tell you how many times I was at Freddie's office as a kid. And when I started driving myself, I'd go there by myself. And I would just hang in his office, which 
If you think about your doctor's office, yeah. if you th- it's a sterile envi- environment. If you're lucky, you get a dumb, dumb sucker on the way out, and that's the only thing that makes you feel better about this place. When you walked into Freddie's office, there was already an air of who's in there. Who, like, it, it was like, is, a, is Elvis getting a shot in the ass? <laughs> is is Phil Collins getting a throat injection? Right. Is a group Chicago back here? Like, yeah. You know, it, it was it was literally like the who's who of if you looked in the paper that day and saw who was performing at Pine Knob or Kobo or the Fox Theater there in the afternoon, there's always a good chance that they could have floated through Freddie's office. And if you were lucky enough to be there, you could have met these guys literally with their pants down in the most chill time, in the most like, you know, down to earth time. And Freddie had the ability to put everybody at ease. I've been in front of, you know, the guys from the group Chicago, obviously obviously all the professional fighters. I got a chance to meet Martina McBride. I was on the phone. I remember calling Freddie's room in Vegas and Engelbert Humperdinck answered the phone. (laughs) Just ridiculous shit. And it was funny because I asked for Freddie and I said, who's this? And he goes, it's Engelbert. And I said, hi, how you doing? This is Robert Young. Oh, hey, how you doing, Rob? Who are you looking for? I said, "Uh, Freddie. Yeah, hold on. He's right here. Freddie got on the phone. Hey, did you talk to Engelbert? Yeah. Yeah, like like you thought it was cool. Like I got the chance to talk to him. But he shared that with you. He didn't guard that from you. He didn't hide that. You know, the access that we had, it wasn't just access and like it was cool and we weren't autograph seekers. It made us realize at a very young age that people are people, that they put their pants on the same way we do. They're flawed like we are. They have sensitivities like we do. And I think it gave us the ability to grow up and walk in every walk of life and be comfortable in it. You're obviously in Hollywood and you, you, your circle of friends and the people that you surround yourself with in the industry, if they were just to walk into the Coney Island in Southfield, they'd be mobbed and the news channels would be there. But in our walk of life, we're all picking our toenails together and we're all hanging out. We're picking our nose and we're, you know, it's, it's, you see all the flaws in people and, and it doesn't matter what they do for a living because they're just people. And you get along with them and, 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 and that's uh, what dad and Freddie, you know, exposed us to at a very young age. And, and obviously our brothers, you know, Jimmy and, and, Fr- and Freddie Jr. and Greggy and obviously Sasha. I mean, none of that stuff phases us. I mean, if you think no. about just the people that were at the services yesterday. Yeah. And there were Hall of Famers there yesterday. Yeah. There no. were news people there yesterday. I mean, it was and, – and, and nobody there and everybody's family. Yep. I mean, we were lucky because, dad, you know, growing up, here's my dad, who's one of his best friends is Al Kaline, all right? Al Kaline's Hall of Fame, one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the game. Talk to anybody that likes, knows about, or is into baseball on any level, they know exactly who Al Kaline is. Al Kaline was at my bar mitzvah. You know, he, he was my dad's boy, all because of the Southfield Athletic Club. And I think, yeah, we were just fucking lucky. And I think we knew it when we were kids because we were two little fucking rascal-ass wild maniacs running around the Southfield Athletic Club. And I just think fun was our mission. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Our mission was just to have fun. But we learned about respect. We learned about respect and how to behave in fucking the presence of adults and other people. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I think about like, for some reason, like Sebastian's act comes to me because he, he's always talking about like what's wrong with people and just about how no one knows how to fucking behave anymore. <laughs> Here's a kid in the corner at the restaurant throwing fucking food against. And it's like, we were taught from a very young age, fucking listen to the adults and don't act like a maniac in public. You know right. what I mean? And have respect for other people. And I just think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not down with the fucking, with, with, with human beings that don't know how to act in fucking public. You know what I mean? Have respect. Don't be a loud mouth. You know what I mean? Because we grew up knowing people that'll whoop your ass that would never speak over a certain <laughs> decibel. You know what I mean? Some of the baddest motherfuckers we know that we yeah. knew were quiet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Last night at Freddie's funeral, I seen Norman. Norman, you know, Norman, one of Freddie's best friends from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. The yelling, you know, Norman was, met our, fam, met our family, 
took our cousins in, put them to work in Hawaii in construction. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Norman is a badass, awesome man and full of love. And he was there for Freddie. But, you know, Norman is a character and he is an underworld type of figure. You know what I mean? Yep. And, you know, you ask what he's doing now. And at one moment he's <laughs> selling bull mastiffs for 100000 and he's running guns to the feds. You know what I mean? He's a right. badass man. Yeah. And these are the people that we grew up around. And what I love about all this is that I don't care what level of badassery you're at or what you do in the underworld. I don't care what your gig is. When it came to going to Freddie's funeral, everybody's on the verge of tears. And and nothing gets me more than dudes crying. Like men crying, it just gets me. Right. I could watch fucking hours of, you know, some shit going on, feed the children, bugs in the eyes of the babies. Beaches. It, it doesn't do shit for me. You know what I mean? But you show me a man at a Rocky funeral. Rocky 1, 2, 3. Rocky 1, 2, and 3. I mean, when <laughs> Apollo died, I fucking cried for a day and a half. Oh, Mickey, come on. You know, it's yeah, just... Mean, but that's that. the shit we grew up around. And well, I think we grew... I, th- I, think the, I think you're right. What we grew up around made us obviously who we are and i remember from a very early age you and i uh, would always talk about unbelievable stories like things that we couldn't really tell our friends things we couldn't say because it sounded like we were lying it sounded like we were lying and kevin connelly didn't believe i knew tommy hearns till a year ago that's what i mean it just sounds ridiculous Uh uh-huh how much time how are we doing on time mike we're doing good we we can we can keep we we can roll i was just checking battery we're, battery. Yeah, we're going good. We're at the tail end of the battery, but we're going to be good for another 10 minutes, I think. What so, does that mean? Does that mean we're going to be coming out like this? It'll just cut off on us, but we're at 40. 40%? No, 40 minutes. And uh, Stick with it, man. It's, time flies when you're loving fun. Yeah, keep rolling. We're good. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember being you know a kid, a probably elementary school kid, and like, we mean Elvis is coming to that. What do you mean? Like Elvis Presley might be coming out. Don't tell anybody. Like don't say anything. But Elvis is, you know, dad's at the club playing racquetball, and he just called, and he you know, Elvis might be coming over for bagels on Sunday. Like, it sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but for you guys out there, it just doesn't sound normal. But you can feel free to Google. Like I said. Elvis Presley racquetball Graceland. Just put that in, and up will come Freddie Lorenz, and there will be a story about Freddie and Davy Bledsoe and Charlie Brumfield and all these racquetball legends who my dad came up around because our dad was a state-ranked bas- uh, racquetball player. Freddie was number one in singles. Dad and Freddie won the doubles tournament um, many, you know, a couple years in a row. So racquetball was a sport we grew up around, and it, it just for some reason. It had a movement in the or 70s into the 80s. But Freddie, there was a time our, our cousin owned a limo service, and we heard through the grapevine rumblings of our living room or kitchen on the phone <laughs> that he was picking Elvis up from the airport. And so me and Rob were like, can Elvis come over? And we just said it like knowing that was sounding that was stupid, that he's never going to come over. And And my dad and dad, probably just to appease us, yeah, yeah, Freddie says Elvis is coming over for bagels. <laughs> so I, I I, do remember going to a couple of the neighbors' houses and going, I know it sounds crazy, fucking Elvis is coming over. <laughs> right. And obviously Elvis did not come over. Right. He was busy doing what he was doing. Right. But Freddie opened up doors that and, – and it's funny because now I'm in Hollywood and I'm doing my thing, whatever, but yeah. there, those were never doors I even tried to go through or open. It was just like – that was almost like we were almost like in Hollywood at 12 years old, <laughs> and then I took a break and went to college, <laughs> yeah. and then went back into it. <laughs> yeah, but, but you we were, were like born around some of that shit, even though we're from Detroit. So, Mike, you got to be going. So, so the first time that you went to like some sort of VIP thing with your buddies, and they're all jazzed up because now they have access, and here you are, you know, like a 22, three year old guy, Hollywood. You got the connection with obviously your boys out there. And you've been doing it your whole life since you were like, you know, eight, nine years old, maybe younger. Did you did you say this ain't shit? Like, I've been no. doing this since I was a baby? No. Or did you just roll with it and see how they reacted to see if they could handle the fame and see if they could handle the access? Because you knew you could. I just rolled with it, man. I never told them that I've been going to Vegas since I was 10. I just, it was such energy going with like, you know, the fellas, like we don't even need to name drop, but you know my, the wow, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All your boys, all my know. boys, they became very famous. 
in the you know 90s and go 2000s and now they're big stars and whatever and early on we were getting invitations to go to vegas and they'd be like you know young we're going to we got a private plane (laughs) it's leaving from the house i mean you got to be packed and go to the house and then the private plane takes us and believe me i was extra excited no doubt because growing up we didn't take any private planes no but we had major access in vegas so we would I'd get on the plane, and they're like, we're going to go to Vegas, and there's going to be a girl that meets us, and we're gonna, everyone gets their own room, and da-da-da. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, shit, at 17, I was in a four-bedroom suite in Caesars Palace <laughs> with Tommy Hearns, Emmanuel Stewart, Freddie, you, and Dad, and Freddie Jr. <laughs> eating lobster, but I never said anything to my boys. I just didn't because it was another version of fun. And now yeah. I'm old enough to get some pussy in Vegas. So <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy fucking this new level of shit. Right. Because we did have a blast. And it was incredible. And it was boxing oriented. But, you know, then later in life when I got to go with the fellas. Yeah. I loved it. I truly loved it just as much. You know what I mean? But I was already calm going right. in. And it right. didn't trip me out. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, and I'd never really said to them, you know, I stayed here years ago or, you know, my dad used to be connected in Vegas and hook us up. I just didn't mention it. It didn't need to be mentioned. I went and just enjoyed the hell out of our trips to Vegas because they were amazing. Yo, that's and you've so been great. able to have some damn great times, too. <laughs> hell yeah. Because of my boys acting abilities. Hell yeah. But you know what? I think nothing compares to being a kid and, and and having access to that stuff and having the respect for it. Totally. I mean, I mean, one of your one of your one of your episodes or your one of your podcasts, you got to title it something like like Showgirls and Shrimp. <laughs> you know, like we saw Showgirls and Shrimp. I mean, listen, I did things. <laughs> you did things. I did things. I just sat on the couch with the clicker. I mean, do you think that the podcast <laughs> is a place to talk about some of those things, or do you think? I you think know, it's okay as long as you, you know, remember that you are also protecting some people, but you also, you know, it's okay. For th- me, the things I did, personally. Yeah, I mean, listen, you're, 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 it's okay for you to talk about it because um, you're single, Mike, and you, those are experiences. Yeah, you can, <laughs> you can talk about people Should that. I talk about that? Yeah, type you can of talk thing? about that type of thing. I think it's okay. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's, you know, listen, if anybody knows Mike, Mike's legendary. Mike has legendary stories. Mike Mike has stories that people dream of. Married men could if they could walk in Mike's shoes for a day, they'd have heart attacks by 6 p.m. It'd be another funeral. <laughs> if they didn't have a heart attack by 6 p.m., it would probably enhance their marriage tenfold. They're, they're if they're if your marriage is on the rocks, you should go to single Mike camp for a day and live with him and see you know what that type of lifestyle is like. You're gonna, you know, and listen, it's a double. The grass isn't always greener. Maybe the grass is greener. Who knows? It's it's to each their own. But I've been married for almost 20 years. I've been with my wife for since 1996, and I go out and visit you once a year, just the two of us. And he never wants to leave. <laughs> he just keeps it's always, staying. It, it went from a Thursday to a Sunday, to a Wednesday to a Monday. To hell, let's just make it a whole week. Tuesday to Tuesday. <laughs> to now your friends think that I live there. They just think that I'm like on a set somewhere or they're off filming a movie and they catch me when they come back. So they don't know that I don't live in L.A. anymore. They just think that they, they're working so much that yeah, they, they just lo- see me when they come back and that's normal. Yeah, they, li- they, like, they potentially like you more than they like me. Right. You, have, you have better conversations with my friends than I do at this point. Yeah. Because they're they, over they, me and I'm over, we're all over each other. They love you. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> My brother's youngest son is walking. You say, what are you saying, Cam? What you, what's up, Cameron? What are you doing, kid? You saying to wrap it up, buddy? Yeah. Okay. Can you shut the door for a minute? Uncle Mike and I are finished. We're going to wrap it up in seven minutes. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up, kiddo. Okay. We will wrap it up. That's Cameron, <laughs> yeah, but the, but one of the, the cool most thing, handsome kids in the world. But the cool thing is about you know walking in all those, li- all those worlds is you know knowing, knowing those guys – uh, the the crew that you have out in LA, you know, they're they're pretty humble dudes too. You wouldn't be friends with them, and vice versa. If if you were, you know, star chasing, and you wanted something from them, the one thing I can say about you, Mike, is you've never, in like Dad, and 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 the where we come from, and 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 the roots that we have here with the people that we know and the way we were brought up, is you work for it, you earn it. 
Hard and, as a motherfucker. You know, and it goes back to Kronk. It goes back to Dad's hard work and blue collar. It goes back to Freddie's roots. It goes back to the people that we were surrounded with, the, the mentors and the father figures that we had growing up, that we never asked for anything from anybody. It was hard nose. It was hard work. And I think that's why we can walk in any any walk of life, whether it's you know mentoring a kid from the inner city um, and understanding what their needs are, or being there to support you know friends that you know have made it or are you know uh, on the fence of of making it, and we have the ability, almost like wise men, to sit with them, our peers, and to have, and, and to be able to guide them or or show guidance and love and support. Um, because we had that growing up. Not a lot of kids had that. We were very lucky to be surrounded by the people that we had and the friends that we had growing up that were, you know, uh, you know, part of our lives, you know, from day one. So we didn't know any different. Yep. God, you got me thinking. I mean, Vegas, Vegas stories could be its own fucking podcast, you know, and I'm so always torn of what, what to be open about and what not to be open about. Because, you know, I come back to Detroit. I see my aunt at the gym. Like my Aunt Susie at Powerhouse Gym. I listen to your podcast. I love it. Well, now I'm not going to go talk about hookers in Vegas in 1999. You know what I mean? Because if I know she's listening, I kind of feel like I should, you know, the part of me is scared to talk. I never did anything that bad, but, you know, I've had some wild times. And sometimes I think it's fun to share on the funny tip just because it's yeah. been funny and it's entertaining. Yeah, you know what, Mike? And it's just a, it's a part of life that I just wasn't afraid yeah. to dive into. Listen. Not that I banged a bunch of hookers, but there's been a couple. <laughs> Listen. I might have had a list. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I think life is short. I think we know that. Obviously, we know that. You know, Dad died at 47. You're 47 now. I'm 45. I, and anybody listening to this podcast. I'm 44 on the <laughs> East. I'm 39 in New York. I'm 38 in Atlanta. And uh, I'm 47 in Detroit. What are you in L.A.? Are we, have we had your 40th birthday yet? No, I'm 42. Oh, you're 42. That's yeah, a good 42 number. in L.A. That's, that's a good yeah. number. Actually, I think I'm 40 with two. There's two girls that think I'm 40. I'm 40 with the Turkish girl, and I'm 40 with uh, this girl from England. How, uh, so, I think. I got to re-ask. So what, what am I? Am I? Is, does my you're age just whatever I Yeah, whatever I am, you're two years younger at all times. Am I younger or older? You look older a little bit than what people think. <laughs> I don't think. But... You're two years younger, no matter what age I am. So I'll let you know if you got to dye your gray sideburns next time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's okay to talk about everything. It is. I think it's okay. I think it's. I, I think that's. I think if I had to say anything about, you know, your podcasts and 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 what you do, obviously for stand up and your writing, just to be able to purge, to be able to unleash that beast, unleash, you know, open those floodgates. And let all those things out. I think at this point in life, you know, knowing you know, knowing that tomorrow ain't guaranteed, and obviously some of the closest people that we had growing up in, in our lives are gone. You, you almost have to do it to honor their memory and the legacy that we have, because even though we're young, we've lived a life for. 500 years. I mean, this shit should be chiseled into a fucking pyramid. We've had a life. Yeah. I mean, we should literally, there should be hieroglyphics of like a 1942 bottle of tequila, a joint, a showgirl with the feathers on her hat, boxing gloves. A beautiful, stunning, blonde, 31-year-old prostitute that walked in with high heels and a blue dress that my job was only after I slept with her to take her out and walk her to her car. That should be in the chisel, too. Yeah. Definitely that not named happen. Angel. <laughs> we should definitely, you know, start opening up about the, those things, and you you have the you have the forum to do it. You you have the outlet for it, so I, I think you should. Well, the funny thing is, is I swear to God, I used to have this dream as a kid, and I used to think to myself, I'm going to live strong, not say no to any adventure. And that didn't mean like I'm not, I never was into drugs. I'm not like a drug dude who's like I'm going to try every drug. That wasn't it. I was going to say yes to every adventure. We're going to go to Vegas, boxing, up north skiing, blah, 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 meet this person, go do that, get in the mix, maybe have a few battles, fights. I'm going to live. Then I want to be able to write and talk about that for a while. And then in chapter three of my life, I just want to be able to, you know, somehow live off stories and the writing and the storytelling. So, yes, I'm never been, I shouldn't be afraid to tell some of the stories that I've gone through. And I mean, I'll just, you know, just we'll close it up and we'll take it back to my dad's friends. 
And, you know, I don't even need to name any names, but, you know, on one of the lucky trips of my life, you know, when I was done with college, I was just about done with college, you know, I was able to go to, you know, a hotel in Vegas, and my dad's buddies hooked it all up for me. And all of a sudden, I'm in a four-bedroom suite in Caesar's Palace. The Rain Man suite. I'm in the Rain Man suite in Caesar's Palace. There's a white piano in the middle of the floor. There's a little pool in the side corner. It's <laughs> overlooking the whole city. And my dad's boys, you know, one of them was sort of like an underworld figure who might have had to move. He had to be on the move kind of quick. And for some reason, he had to leave. He had to leave. So he left me with one of my boys, and I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't want me to say his name. So he leaves me with one of my boys, and before he leaves, we're sitting in the room, and there's me, my boy who's my, around my age, and um, and a couple of my dad's boys, and they're floating throughout, and it was boxing weekend, so they're in and out of the suite. A couple of fighters were in and out. Just people were doing shit, and at one moment, me and my boy are sitting on the couch, and like 10 feet away, one of dad's buddies is on the couch, and one of the heads of Caesar's Palace who comes in and this is at the time when Caesar you know when some gangsters were around Vegas and whatnot and they sit down and now they're having like an open conversation and I'm only 10 feet away and I'm hearing shit in this conversation that I know I probably shouldn't be hearing or they just don't give a fuck they're like Michael's a kid that was raised to not talk so he just isn't talking so I'm sitting on the couch with my boy and we're just kind of staring off into the distance and maybe looking at the jumbo shrimp that's on a platter and here comes you know one of the fighters in and out and they start talking and they're getting into subject matter and it's like guns this and flying here and we got someone's going to meet us here and they're orchestrating like some big time shit that's about to go down and me and my boy look at each other and we both are thinking the same thing. Is he fucking with us? Is he just saying this to kind of scare us? But we knew he was a real dude and he wasn't scaring us. He just trusted us and didn't give a fuck and was going to say what he had to say and didn't even think about us. And... In this moment of him talking to da da, this stunning blonde walks in to the room. She walks in the room. Uh-huh. And I'm fucking 19, 20 years old, 20. I don't remember how old exactly, but right around there. And she walks in in a tight blue dress and she is fucking stunning. And I'm a horny bastard because it's just the way I, I just I just felt I just was. Not you, Mike. And I just I looked at one of our friends of the family and I looked at him. I walked over to him and I knew what she was there for. I know she was a working girl. She was gonna be there for a fighter or for somebody in the camp, whatever. And I was just I was just I got excited. And I walked over to one of our family friends and I was like, Hey man, listen, is there any way? Because I had no money. I was fucking broke. I was in school or just come, about to come out of school. I didn't have a fucking dollar to my name. And you're in Vegas in the Rain Man suite. That's I have no money irony. in my pocket. I'm fucking broke. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm in the Rain Man suite in Vegas, and it's high level. Uh, shut the door for this one. I'm gonna, I am gonna. will be out in four minutes. <laughs> and I walk up to my dad, to a, to a friend, and I say, is there any chance I could get down here? <laughs> Can I? And he's like, God damn it, Michael, your father would kill me if you knew about this. God damn it. Just hold on one sec. He stops what he's doing. He goes. He has a mini negotiation with her. He gives her 500 bucks. And next thing I know, it's my first experience with a hooker. Yep. And I, she takes me upstairs to the far right room. She goes in first. I'm having fucking heart attack, mini flutters. I got a stomach ache because I'm fucking panicked. You AFib fucked her. I AFib banged her. She got AFib fucked. And it didn't last more than eight minutes. I'm sure? giving myself, I mean, maybe five and That's a half. That's including the shower. And I'm so nervous. I'm up there and I'm, before I even get undressed, I'm pacing around the bed a little bit. She's already in the bed. She, this bitch, she's done this a thousand. I'm number seven for the day. Did you stretch it all? I, I stretched stretch? out. I went into the mirror in the bathroom. I started heavy breathing, taking some deep breaths. I splashed water on my face. She's like, what the hell are you doing in there? I'm like, I'll be right out. Does your family know you do this? She's like, shut up and strap it on. And next thing I know, I have the great greatest time ever with her oh that's class it was amazing and when it was all done one of our friends who set it all up says to me michael here's a bottle of wine you're gonna give this to her and you're gonna walk her to the parking lot and i (laughs) walked her and she had put she and here i am i'm definitely 10 years younger than her at least and i walk her through the fucking casino 
and I am a kid in a fucking sweatsuit jacket, fila black, and I'm walking a hooker through a Vegas hotel, and I'm her escort now, and I'm escorting her to her car. And that was like the first time that it, that ever happened. You were like the baby walking out of babysitter. Yo, <laughs> I literally was the baby protecting the babysitter. And it was amazing. And I have no, I do not feel bad about it at all. I had a great time. Everybody right. was safe. Right. Fuck it. I chalked it up as a story. That's, yeah. So now the floodgates are open. So I think, I think you need to, you know, understand that. Those are just words, you know, and those are experiences that you had. Nobody's getting hurt by you saying what you have to say and the stories that you have to tell. So I think, you know, when you, you asked the question before to yourself, is it time? Should we say, you know, should I talk about these things? I think the, the unequivocal answer is yes. And I think the people that listen to this podcast want to hear it. I think it's important for your own salvation to get that stuff out. Yeah. And I think for to further enhance your career and what you're doing as far as single mic and some of the shows that you're writing and some of the projects that you already have going on i think that you need to start purging these things and get them out of your system because these are the stories that need to be told on that perspective and single mic is who you are i mean you're mike young you're you have legendary status you're a neighborhood movie star you, you know, you, you, you could you could write the music, you could write the script, you could direct it, you could produce it, and you can act in it. You're, you know, I don't even know what that means, but that's five-time threat, you know, in the industry. And so many people in the industry have are one-dimensional. You are so multi-dimensional, and you have the ability to give the and tell these stories. You articulate it so well. Thanks, Rob. And so so concisely that... It's 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 compelling. It's time to open up the floodgates. Open up the floodgates. I've talked to people, my friends that, that listen to you around the country. I was just in Baltimore, and one of my oldest friends in the world, Joel Wax, got, you know, I fucking love him. I was just with him for three of the greatest days ever. Every night after this conference, he came and picked me up. He's going through some personal things, and you know, I haven't seen him in 20 years. But it goes to tell you about like the way we were raised. We were like two kids in the sandbox, and and it went right back to that time where you're, you're, you're that's your boy, like Freddie and Dad, like Joel's my you know Freddie and I'm Dad. It's like we were there to lift each other up, to get deep under the surface about what's really you know eating at us, and it, it it's instant karma when you're with those people. And I think that for those guys and for anybody else listening. You have to be able to you know, put this out there to the world because as corny as it sounds, I think it helps people understand themselves, understand that it's okay to you know, let it out. Yeah. Because I think, I think you know, the things in life uh, that we hold in, if you don't share it, you don't talk to somebody about it, you don't let other people know about it. Manifest itself. It, it can manifest itself in a lot of ways. And, and as we know, that uh, it can come out in, in, in ways that, you know, unfortunately it brings people together. But we want to be able to bring people together in such a great way. And you have such a great outlet here. And you're the fucking man. I fucking love you, you know. And you, you, I got your back a thousand percent. And you ever want to run something by me, I'm always here for you. You know that. Yeah. Now, my brother is like the, the best. He's the best last line of defense. When I'm doing a story, if I'm writing anything, he always... He always has the best notes out of all the motherfuckers in Hollywood. I don't care where it's coming from. My brother has the best notes. And I don't know if it's because you know me the best or you also have a natural knack for story. But you always have, when it comes to the show we're doing with the Eminem thing and the Detroit 70s thing, you've given the best fucking notes. Because you're able to just, you crack it open another level for me because sometimes I get caught up. I'll hear so much bullshit out there about, you know, some fucking bitch made notes from people that are, you know, that are like inside of a box and you just don't give a fuck. You don't, you're not in Hollywood. So you just, you take, you, you can take character to another level. You can take story to another level. So thank you. You, you help me with that shit. Believe me when I tell you. And I know I, I know I, I get on you and I harass you a little bit and tell you, leave me alone with shit. Cause you know, look, writing and all that shit, it's, 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 it's hard cause it's, you're alone doing it, but I appreciate you. I love you.
this has been a great podcast. It's one hour. We could do another one hour later, but battery is is looking. It's at it's the battery is fi- officially done, and I'm praying that this is all being recorded. And I think it is, but uh, yeah, I think we could wrap this up as a dedication to Freddie, to Dad, to their crew, and 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 just a testament to how to be a motherfucking man in life. Let's call this part one of 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 two because we got another hour to do. Okay, we'll call it one or two. Part one or two. Mm-hmm. And I'll just throw in a double D battery and we'll go two of two. And we can make the next one. This has been one of being a man. This has been one of, you know, love and dad and his friends and boxing and Kronk and where we came from and the grit and the fucking world of th- that we've been privileged enough to get into. We can make part two tragedy. I mean... Let it be what it is. We come from a fucking family of three suicides, 12 deaths before we were 21 years old. We could both carry a casket blindfolded. Yep. We've been to too many funerals. So just to let you know, I don't come from a fuck. Yeah, we've had a beautiful life. But the irony of it all is we've seen tragedy. So maybe part two is you could listen to it no matter what you've been through. Believe me, it'll help because we fucking unfortunately... From a very young age, somehow, some way, a lot of death was around us, you know, from a real young age. Success from failure. And, and, uh, I mean, if you want to call tragedy and equate that to, you know, failure of some kind, but the people that we lost, we loved deeply. Deeply. They were the people closest to us. We had a 10-year run of our favorite people dying. Yeah. When our phone rings, it's not like... Someone calling you up and wanting to like hang out and make dinner plans. When our phone rang when we were younger, you had a certain pit, something you felt something in your gut. To this day, to this fucking day, when the phone rings and one of our family members is calling, within seconds, you're just the first thing you do, everything all right? Everything cool? Uh-huh. You good? Yep. You good? Yep. You know what I mean? And in, and this, I'll take it double full circle. I knew something was up after the show on Friday when I woke up in the morning and mom was on the phone. And usually my favorite sound is mom laughing on the phone. My favorite sound is the boys, your boys laughing. Uh-huh. My favorite sound is people laughing. And I heard mom on the phone and I, and she gasped. And she was like, what? Uh-huh. When? And I knew something happened. And then it starts racing in my mind. And I popped up, fucking got to the hallway, and just was like, what, what, what? And she told me Freddie passed. And that's, you know, that was that phone call that you don't want to get. Right. But I think we got to celebrate life. You know, we learn how to celebrate life. life. Us and our cousins and our family and our friends that have been around us our whole lives kind of know that we live a different way. And I think that that could be a part of the part two. And talk about some of that good stuff. Talk about our family and friends and the experiences that we've had. And continue on this path of, you know. Do good by opening up, you know. Yeah. Do good by sharing. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. all about it. Growing. Love it. I'm all about it. This is part one of two. Stories that need to be told. Mike Young, Robert Young, you just got a chance to meet my brother. No, that's not me doing my voice with a little different level because people think we sound exactly alike. But I love you. Thanks for sitting down. Love you too, brother.